0: The Jodcast, on average, about 57% water, with George Bendo, John Field, Stuart Harper, Andy LeClerc, Ian Morrison, Christina Smith, and Chris Wallace. The Jodcast, October 2013 edition. Hello, and welcome to The Jodcast. Joining me in the studio today are George and Chris. Hi guys. Hello. All right. In the show this time, Christina talks to Professor Andrew Jaffe about probing the early universe with Planck, we take a look at what the night sky has in store for us, and fit in some odds and ends from the world of astronomy. But first, before all of that, here's Stuart with this month's news.
1: This month in the news, we get to the core of the matter. At a distance of 24,000 light-years from the Earth, in the direction of Sagittarius A star, is a small region of space which resides at the centre of the Milky Way. The galactic centre contains some of the most violent and extreme physical processes we can observe and squashes them into a region only a few hundred light-years across. However, observing the galactic centre with the light we see from our own eyes is impossible because it is obscured by thick curtains of dust. Instead, what we know of the galactic centre comes from observations using radio and X-ray telescopes. From these observations, we might have learnt that the galactic centre contains several of the largest star-forming nebulae within the Milky Way. A powerful magnetic field that forms long filaments of gas and dust, and most importantly, at the very core, is a dark object four million times the mass of the Sun. A supermassive black hole. The supermassive black hole at the centre of the Milky Way is the closest of its kind, the next nearest residing presumably within the core of Andromeda, more than 100 times further away. This makes the Milky Way's black hole an excellent laboratory for studying the properties of black holes. Although black holes are poorly understood phenomena, we believe they are a critical component in the formation of galaxies, and that how they behave at any given time has a profound effect upon the rest of the host galaxy. Supermassive black holes can be found in both the dormant state, like the one in the Milky Way, or in an incredibly bright state as it feeds upon the gas and dust of nearby stars within a galaxy. Though, what causes a black hole to stop or start feeding is not understood. For example, by using X-ray observations, it is possible to see that the supermassive black hole in the centre of our galaxy is surrounded by a disk of hot gas, yet this gas is not being consumed by the black hole. One reason why this may occur is related to the extremely powerful magnetic field generated by the black hole, which interacts with the surroundings in such a way as to keep anything from falling past the black hole's event horizon. The magnetic field generated by the Milky Way's supermassive black hole is a key component to understanding the galactic center's environment, and our understanding of how supermassive black holes stop or start consuming matter within a galaxy. Although measuring the magnetic field directly is not possible, a group of astronomers working with many telescopes at many different wavelengths have been able to measure the effect the magnetic field has on the light emitted from a pulsar that resides near to the supermassive black hole. The light from the pulsar is highly polarised, and when it passes through the thick clouds of plasma and the strong magnetic field in the galactic centre, the orientation of its polarisation rotates. The amount of rotation depends on the distance travelled and the wavelength of light observed. Thus, the astronomers, using many different observations at different wavelengths, were able to determine exactly how strong the magnetic field around the pulsar is, and therefore infer the strength of the magnetic field around the supermassive black hole. This will allow for the feeding habits of the supermassive black hole to be better understood, and if more pulsars can be found near the black hole, this method could be used to test its space-time properties. Also in the news, the rate at which new stars are formed every year throughout the universe long ago reached its peak. Today, the only places where new stars are forming are within the cold, dense clouds of spiral galaxies, like the Milky Way. But at a paltry rate of just one or two a year. In the past, roughly 10 billion years ago, it was possible to have galaxies forming thousands of stars a year. However, with so many stars forming, and consequently dying huge injections of energy heated up and blasted away the gas and dust within the galaxies. In time, the galaxies were left with nothing more to form new stars, and slowly aged into the large red elliptical galaxies we see throughout the universe today. This, though, is not the complete story, because if it was, we would see that the relationship between the mass within a galaxy's halo, the tenuous bubble of gas and dark matter that surrounds all galaxies, and the number of stars within a galaxy, having an obvious link. This is because the expectation would be that if there were more stuff to make more stars, there would be more stars. This is not the case. Instead, we see more dim galaxies with few stars than we see of galaxies with low mass halos. So what is stopping the formation of stars? The culprit, once again, is the supermassive black hole at the core of these galaxies. How exactly a supermassive black hole stops star formation though is still a mystery. The primary line of thought is that the powerful jet that is fired from either pole of the black hole smashes through the star-forming material in the galaxy, heating it up and ejecting it into intergalactic space. Unfortunately, though, this would not be enough to quench star formation within a galaxy, because the beam of the jet is so narrow and the tiny sliver of star-forming material would be caught within it. Last month, astronomers proposed a new way in which supermassive black holes can quench star formation they made super high-resolution radio telescope observations of a nearby galaxy, 4C1250, which has an actively feeding supermassive black hole in its galactic core, and thus a powerful jet emerging in opposite directions from the galaxy. What the astronomers hoped to do was measure individual nebulae within 4C1250 and see how much radio emission from the jet is being absorbed. What they found was that some of the clouds they were observing were casting long radio shadows as they absorbed nearly all the jet's emissions. Then, by making further observations, they could measure the velocities of these clouds relative to 4C1250. And they found that many of them were travelling in excess of 1,000 kilometers per second. Such ferocious speeds means that the gas within the nebula will never be able to form stars, as that requires cool, calm environments with very little kinetic energy, so that the mutual gravitational attraction of all the gas can dominate. These findings now confirm supermassive black holes are key to galactic evolution and the emergence of long-dead elliptical galaxies we see throughout the universe today.
0: Thanks for that, Stuart. Now, we have Christina talking to Professor Andrew Jaffe about probing the early universe with Planck.
2: Joining me in the studio now is Professor Andrew Jaffe from Imperial College London. Hello. Hiya. Uh, Thank you for joining us on the JugCast today. My pleasure. And uh, you're giving a talk about probing the early universe with Planck. Can you sort of explain what you mean by the early universe?
3: Sure. Sure. Well, the early universe, we mostly mean any time when the universe has a very different character than it does today. So today the universe is filled with stars and galaxies and clusters of galaxies and planets and people, television sets, stuff like that. But when we go early on the universe didn't have any stuff in it that you'd call things not independent things so the early universe was more or less uniformly dense everywhere with tiny tiny fluctuations and the further back we go the more weird this most of the stuff in the universe is but the basic hallmark is that early on there was no there were no individual objects and later on there are objects so we really probe the time in the universe when there weren't stars or galaxies or things like that in the
2: universe. So this is pretty soon after the Big Bang?
3: Pretty soon after the Big Bang. So the thing we call the cosmic microwave background radiation, which is what we observe directly with the Planck satellite that I'll be talking about, is light that comes from 400,000 years after the Big Bang. So I would say sort of anything before about a million years we can call the early universe, but some people might call the very early universe, sort of the first seconds or the first three minutes. To some people, that's the early universe. But I'm trying to be a little more Catholic in my description <laughs> and let it let it start a bit later or let it end a bit later.
2: So you're using Planck to look at this. What exactly about the early universe are you looking at with Planck?
3: Planck tries to directly observe something called the Cosmic Microwave Background Radiation. This is light that last interacted with something at this time about 400,000 years after the Big Bang. So what's going on? What happens is the early universe was hotter and denser than it is today, and the very early universe, before about 400,000 years, was so hot that it took the gas atoms that we have in the universe today, which is mostly hydrogen, and it stripped them apart. So an atom of hydrogen is a proton surrounded by an electron, And when things are hot, things are moving around so fast that you basically bump the electron off of the nucleus, the proton. And so you end up with something called an ionized plasma, which is basically free electrons and free protons just bouncing around and not connected to one another. And it turns out that because of the way electromagnetism works, that light scatters off of these charged things, the proton and the electron, much more readily than it would have off of the neutral hydrogen atom that you can make out of those two things. So that means that you, the early universe, when you have this charged plasma, is essentially opaque because light can't go very far before it scatters.
2: It gets stopped from getting to the point where we can observe it. It
3: gets stopped, that's right. Just like inside a cloud. If the sun is on the other side of a cloud, as I'm in Manchester today, I look out <laughs> and it's pretty cloudy, but I think I know vaguely where the sun is. And I can look and I can see, well, there's a little bit of extra haze there, so I can see what's going on. But the light has a much longer way to travel. It bounces around. Essentially, that cloud is nearly opaque to light, and the early universe was even more opaque than that. But just like by looking at the light that does make it through, you can learn about the properties of the cloud to some extent. By looking at the early universe, by looking at these microwaves, as it turns out, that we measure, you can learn about the cloud. What is that cloud? That cloud is everything that's before 400,000 years after the Big Bang. Because as you look further away, you're looking back in time. So at some point there's this surface of this cloud. But everything beyond that, everything further away is earlier, so we get to image the entire early universe, or at least try to induce the properties of the entire early universe just by looking at these photons that get freed from this ionized and opaque plasma.
2: What specific property about them? Are you looking at frequency or an intensity?
3: So we're looking at them on mass. We're not looking at, at individual photons. And some parts of the sky we see that there are more photons coming from, and they have a little bit higher energy, some places a little bit less. And basically that more or less translates into a little bit hotter or a little bit colder. We describe the intensity of these photons by a temperature. Now, I'm not talking about temperatures that you would encounter normally on the Earth. I'm talking about temperatures that are all a little bit more or a little bit less of about 2.73 degrees Kelvin. That's 2.73 degrees above absolute zero.
2: So these things are really, really cold. (laughs) These are really,
3: really cold. Or in the language of photons, they're really, really low energy. They're microwaves. That's because the universe has been expanding, and so all the photons in the universe have been expanding ever since these photons were released from this plasma I was talking about. So early on, these were actually ultraviolet photons when they were released, but as they've traversed the universe in the time since then, they've redshifted, as we say, to become microwave photons, and that's what we see.
2: You're mapping these different temperatures, and mm-hmm. what can you tell from these temperatures?
3: More or less directly, where we see a higher temperature, there was more stuff. Where we see a lower temperature, there was less stuff. That's just because the amount of stuff for a, for something that is glowing with a temperature basically directly translates into that. We're basically looking at something that is, roughly speaking a map of a surface in the early universe. Where it's brighter, there's more stuff. Where it's dimmer, there's less stuff. So we have a map of the clumps that were around in the universe at this early time, the clumps that would eventually grow into those objects that we finally get to see in the universe in much more modern times. So the very, the very largest bright things we can see in the microwave background would become, you know, in a billion years or so, a cluster of galaxies, let's say. And the very dim places would would empty out of all the galaxies.
2: So these things kind of correlate to what we see in our nearby universe. I, I use exactly. nearby loosely. Exactly. <laughs> no, that's,
3: but that's exactly right. We can't see the cluster of galaxies that a given spot forms, but we can look around, and if we make the assumption that scientists always make, which is that the universe is roughly the same no matter where you go, then we can compare statistically the things we see on this surface, which we call the surface of last scattering, and the universe today, and we can compare the way those spots seem to have evolved into the galaxies and clusters of galaxies that we see in the universe now.
2: Are there any patterns that we see in the CMB maps, the map that was released from mm-hmm. Planck? Do you see any patterns or is, is there any differences in, in the regions?
3: There is certainly a pattern. It depends on what you call a pattern, mm-hmm. but the whole idea of the experiment, and the reason why we wanted to do it is that we know that it's not a completely, I'll have to use a little technical jargon, uncorrelated randomness on the surface what we care about the most are the way that a given bright spot may have more bright spots near it or further away from it. And it's exactly that kind of pattern that we care about the most. And that's not a pattern as in, you know, your wallpaper has a pattern on it, which is specified by the people who wove it. It's a kind of randomness, but it's a randomness with some structure to it. And that structure is exactly what we're trying to learn about.
2: So what does this structure actually look like? You said it's kind of more common for a bright lump to have bright lumps around it.
3: That's right. So we we basically want to measure what we call the correlation function, or in yet more technical jargon, the power spectrum of this stuff. And one way to think about it is the map itself has about 50 million pixels Mm -hmm. across the whole sky. And the amount of information that's there, though, because there's a lot of randomness, isn't 50 million bits of information. I don't mean bit like a computer bit, just pieces of information. Rather, there's about, in the way we've measured it, about, let's say, 2,500 pieces of information. So there's a lot less information than you might have thought, but we can measure each of those 2,500 pieces of information very, very accurately because we can average over about 2,500 pieces of information for each of those. And so it enables us to get a very good picture of exactly the way a given bright spot might have a certain number of bright spots about 10 degrees from it, just to make up a number, or a certain fewer number 20 degrees from it, things like that. We can actually look at the way things are arranged as a function of angular size on the sky, and that, it turns out, conveys not all but most of the information that's available to us on the sky.
2: Mapping these patterns, has this been done before? Has this been done with, say, things like WMAP? That's right.
3: So there's a long history of this. So the history of looking for these patterns and finding them dates from about the early 90s from a satellite called COBE and a particular instrument on that satellite called the DMR, the Differential Microwave Radiometer. And over the course of the 90s, people perfected the, the next generation of technologies using ground and balloon-based experiments. And then in the early 2000s, the WMAP satellite that you mentioned was launched by NASA. And that took a similar idea to COBE, but it did it much more high, high sensitivity, a much better experiment than COBE. And so whereas COBE could only look with, let's say, glasses that smeared out the sky with about 10 degrees, WMAP had a half a degree. So, okay. you know, a factor of 20 Massive in angular then. in angular size, um, or because you're actually looking at patches, it's actually the square of 20, the matter. So in some sense, it was 400 times better than Kobe. And then subsequent to that, again, there was another generation of ground- and balloon based experiments trying to push the envelope of technology. And in 2009, of course, using old technology, because satellites, as you probably know, you can't use the latest and greatest technology because you have to make sure that it can fly into space and not be destroyed by radiation and cold and shaking and all that sort of thing. So instead, we're using kind of 2000 technology by the time Planck was launched in 2009, it was a similar leap over WMAP as WMAP was over COBE. So, for example, just in terms of that angular extent that you can see, and that's not the only way you need to describe the instrument, but that's one of them. Planck, at best, had about five arc minutes, so about one-twelfth of a degree, one-tenth or twelfth of a degree. That's compared to about a half a degree that WMAP had. So, again, it was sort of a, a factor of, you know, 30 or 40 better in some sense than WMAP. So we've got that much more information out of the experiment, and that's enabled us to really pin down, kind of qualitatively and quantitatively, much more of the cosmological model than we were able to do in the years leading up to Planck.
2: You referred to a cosmological model there. Mm -hmm. What sort of cosmological model do you mean?
3: Right. So the basic idea is, well, the Big Bang happened about 14 billion years ago, and given what we know about general relativity, which describes space and time on the very largest scales, we know that there are a certain number of parameters, just number of different numbers you need to describe how the universe expands over time. And those numbers talk about how much stuff is in the universe and how much of the stuff of each kind. So there's more or less normal matter, so atoms and the different kinds of atoms that there are, mostly hydrogen and helium in the universe. There is something, this mysterious dark matter that we know because it induces gravity on various scales and we see that it's there it's sort of almost incontrovertibly there but we don't know what it is because we can't actually see how it interacts with anything except by gravity so it makes it hard to see that's why we call it the dark matter so we can we get a census of how much dark matter there is how much normal matter the, the atoms there are and then the listeners probably know we've over the last decade or two we've we've grown pretty convinced that there's something which we've grown to call dark energy out there which more or less makes the universe expand ever faster over time and that's coming online as, as you might think today or uh, over the last few billion years anyway which in, in the, for an astronomer that's today so those, sort of, those talk about how much stuff is in the universe. You then need to place, because the ratios of how much of each of those things actually change over time, you need to specify either a time or something which lets you pin that down. So we tend to measure that by how fast the universe is expanding today. So instead of really measuring the time directly, we measure something called the Hubble constant, which is essentially how, fa- how many kilometers per second you get in speed when you go out further and further. And that's the way the universe expands, so we measure that number. And that gives you something about the global structure of space and time. And then you want to know some numbers which have to do with why there is stuff in the universe, why it isn't uniform anymore, but why there are galaxies and clusters of galaxies. And the two numbers you need to describe that are kind of an overall number for sort of how strong the clustering of stuff is, and then another number which tells you how much more likely you are to get small objects versus big objects. So those two numbers, plus the numbers which describe how much of each of the stuff there is, plus the number which describes how fast the universe is expanding, plus another number which tells you about the astrophysics, which tells you basically when objects started lighting up in the universe. And it turns out those six numbers, I think, are really all you need to describe the universe in all its glory on large scales. Obviously, you need more to know about planets and things like that, but we don't. that's small potatoes for us.
2: That's a surprisingly small number of parameters.
3: It is a surprisingly small number. And if you think about it, that means Planck is is an amazing achievement of data compression. First of all, before it even makes those maps I talked about, which have 50 million pixels, it gathers some many trillions of data points, telemeters them back to Earth, makes the 50 million pixel maps, then makes the 2,500 numbers which I talked about, which give you the clustering of the spots on the microwave background sky. But then we take those 2,500 numbers, we compress them down to six. That's incredible. (laughs) So it's a really good data compression, so very high-tech. Obviously, you can't reproduce in detail the map that we originally got because most of that is a statistical fact about the way the universe looks. It's not a fact about, ah, there's a galaxy there and a hotspot there. So you can't... It's not two-way data compression. It's lossy, but it's lossy, but it still tells you an awful lot about what the universe is like today.
2: That's really, really interesting stuff. When Planck is producing these maps... Obviously, I mean, there's stuff in the way, sort of... Mm -hmm. There's our galaxy in the way, there are other galaxies. How do you get from the initial view to just the CMB?
3: That's a great question. So when I said that it produced these 50 million pixel maps, of course I was lying. It produces nine 50 million pixel maps. And each of those nine maps is in a different frequency. We do that because we know the spectra. So we know whether something is more likely to be peaking at 90 gigahertz or 300 gigahertz or 500 gigahertz because for many of the different astrophysical things in the universe. And we also know what it's like for the microwave background itself. By using all that information about the possible spectra of these different processes, which glow essentially along the line of sight, we can use that to disentangle those different things. So as long as, roughly speaking, if we have nine frequency bands, we kind of have access to information about nine different components. And we actually think that overcounts. We don't need that many components. So by using it to actually produce a smaller number of components, we're more sure that we're getting the physics right of each of them. And it's still a process that involves science. It's not just a math problem. You actually have to understand something about the physics and it's a hard problem because we don't understand everything there is to know. So in fact, the way the team works is we have four different methods to do that disentangling of the different components. And we use all of them and we then compare the results at the end and we show that they're essentially statistically equivalent. So we know that we haven't made any unwarranted assumptions and we haven't we haven't put in anything into the data that isn't there.
2: That's incredible that you can kind of get rid of it by the sort of peaking at every different point and that you can get down to such small sort of temperature differences because I mean... Things like stars and and, and our, our Milky Way must create a lot of light and a lot of emission.
3: That's right. In those nine original maps that we start with, most of them are dominated over most of the sky by something that isn't the microwave background that we care about. In, in a few of the cases, you can see at the at sort of the top and the bottom the microwave background peaking up, but we couldn't really do this problem at all if we didn't have all of those different frequency channels. And even given that, we end up, for the data as we release it today, we end up only using relatively small fractions of the sky to produce the final results, and that's because so much of the sky is dominated by emission that's along the line of sight that you talked about.
2: Are there any future plans for the data, Any anything that's...
3: Sure. So this is only the first year of results. We're going to probably have two more times when we release Planck data. The most important thing is that the experiment ran and actually is still running, but for over two and a half years, and we've really only released 15 months' worth of data. So we'll have about double the amount of data to eventually go on. Also very important, um, although normally we just think of light as being either bright or dim, but light also has a property called polarization. And uh, people might have had polarized sunglasses, and they know that if they twist their head by 90 degrees, they can actually change the way things look. And if they look at light uh, reflecting off a surface, like uh, like water, by, if you look at it in different ways with your polarized sunglasses, it looks very different. We measure the polarization of the light from the microwave background as well, and it turns out that that carries both sort of some duplicate information and some complementary information to the temperature as well. Over the next few months, we'll be perfecting our measurements of the polarization, using the same data that we've already got, but just, just understanding the processing of the data better. And in sometime in 2014, we'll be releasing a data set that has not only more intensity data, but also has polarization data. So at some level, it's going to be three times more data, whereas the intensity is one number, the polarization, because it's basically an arrow, on the sky. Actually, it's an arrow without a head. It's like a stick. and But you still need a, you need a length for the stick and an angle. And if you those two numbers, which is therefore two numbers for every position, in addition to the intensity number that you had before, we're sort of tripling the amount of data.
2: And so will these be used again to kind of constrain models? Or?
3: That's right. Some of the, the things we will use it for is just more or less to confirm or challenge the numbers that we've got so far, because the same physics that produces the temperature at the early universe also produces the polarization. But because it's essentially a new window, we're hoping that we can find new things. And one thing that we hope for, although we're not sure that Planck will be sensitive enough, because it depends on the way the universe actually is structured, is that one of the ideas that is that in the very early universe, there's a background of gravitational radiation, so just the, the ripples in space-time early on it turns out that that induces a very specific kind of pattern in the polarization, one that we can look for. And if we found this, this would be an amazing achievement and a real piece of evidence for an important part of our model, which is beyond that it's just the Big Bang, but that something called, I'm sure your listeners will probably hear other people talk about it here, called inflation. And inflation is a way that we go and lay down those initial fluctuations in the early universe, the ones that grew eventually to become the galaxies and clusters of galaxies that we see.
2: So by inflation, you sort of mean the rapid expansion.
3: That's right. So in the early universe... We we think one explanation for the way the universe got to be the way it is today is that something like 10 to the minus 35 seconds after the Big Bang, uh, the universe underwent this very rapid expansion, um, something sometimes called superluminal. But you know, nothing is actually moving faster than the speed of light, except for the expansion of space. So so there's nothing wrong with that happening. We think that happens, and uh, that has the ability to lay down fluctuations that we see, but it also lays down these gravitational waves. And if we can observe those, that would be an amazing achievement that would really teach us more about the structure of space and time than we've ever learned before, really.
2: Well, there's a whole load of stuff that you can get out of this, then. That's right. It's a really exciting field. Thank you very much for telling us all about your research, and I uh, hope everything goes well with the next few releases of data. My pleasure.
3: Thank you very much.
0: Thanks for that, Christina. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other things we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. Well, I'm going to kick these uh, odds and ends off by talking about the Kepler Space Telescope. We have talked about Kepler a few times in the past. And we're coming back to it because the last time we mentioned Kepler, we'd noted that the second reaction wheel out of four reaction wheels had broken and stopped working. And so Kepler was unable to continue its mission of hunting for exoplanets. It's already found at least 3,000 candidates for exoplanets, so it did a pretty good job of its mission, but unfortunately didn't have the precision and stability required to pick up the tiny variations in light due to the, the passing of exoplanets in front of stars. However, it is a space telescope and you're not going to pass up the opportunity to use that for science, and obviously most of the onboard instrumentation is still working. NASA put out a call in August for ideas about how to use Kepler in this two-wheeled state, so this less precise state that could possibly still do astronomy.
4: Just to be clear, when you say less precise state, it just means less precise in terms of pointing, not less precise in terms of being able to measure the amount of light from individual stars, right?
0: Of course, yeah, this is in terms of how stable it can be on a very very specific point in the sky over long periods of time which is so what its wheels
5: they they just stabilize the telescope
0: exactly okay so obviously this is still of a lot of use to the astronomical community and dozens of proposals came in including plans to use it to detect near earth asteroids trying to find jupiter sized exoplanets and even monitoring neptune one of the more interesting ones is that stellar physicists have said that Kepler is now in a really good position to, in fact, study a certain type of star population that very little is known about. These stars are known as OB stars. They're very hot, very massive, and very, very bright. And Kepler wasn't in a position to study them before the reaction wheels broke because the light coming from these stars would just overwhelm any sort of variations due to planets, so it, it wasn't pointing at OB stars at this point. Now that it's less precise... Stellar astronomers think that they could use Kepler to look at OB stars and in fact study the stars themselves using a method known as astroseismology. All the internal dynamics of the stars, all all the swirling hot gas that's in the star, shakes things up a lot. And the dynamics of the star uh, manifest themselves as flickers and changes in the brightness of the star. And so by observing it over long periods of time and looking at the little variations in the light of the star you can determine information about what's what's going on in the star in terms of the, the dynamics of, of things like the gas. While Kepler can't detect small oscillations caused by planets, these bigger oscillations should definitely be able to be picked up. The advantage it has of being a space telescope as opposed to looking for these astro-seismical oscillations from the ground is that Kepler can point at a star continuously. It doesn't have to be interrupted when the sun rises, for example. And as it turns out, these, these very bright and hot OB stars are very important in terms of the chemical composition of the universe because they're the ones, they sort of live fast and die young. They're they're hundreds of times the mass of the sun, and they really run through their store of fuel really, really quickly, and most of them go supernovae. In the supernovae explosions, they eject many of the heavy metals that are found in the universe. So a lot of the metal content comes from these OB stars. But in fact, very little is known about what's going on inside them during their lifespan. So that would be one way of extending Kepler's lifetime and, and getting it to do something that it wasn't really designed to do in the first place. It does have its reservations, though. People are Some other people do have doubts as to whether Kepler would even be able to pick up these oscillations from OB stars, because only two out of four reaction wheels working means that the images are going to be pretty decently blurry, so the variations might not be as detectable as 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 the scientists who put forward the proposal think and also some kepler scientists are a little bit reserved about using kepler for something else than detecting exoplanets so currently nasa is still running tests to figure out how precise they can how precise they can get the pointings to be on kepler any decision on the proposals will be made sometime next year
4: i guess the uh, kepler scientists just feel like they put in a lot of effort into building this telescope writing the software for it getting in, into orbit now that uh the telescope's unable to do the science that they want probably bothers them a bit that some other group which didn't spend any time whatsoever working on the telescope it can now come in and say oh we have a great idea on how to use this yeah of so, course yeah yeah maybe that's part of the reason why they're so reserved about giving the telescope or using the telescope to observe something other than exoplanets.
0: Yeah, it's definitely understandable. I mean there is the possibility as well that NASA's just gonna think, well, there isn't a mission that's justifiable enough for Kepler and to spend the money the the funding on a different science goal and they might just allocate that money to some other more worthy project. So it's it could be a case of, of either having something is better than nothing for Kepler. But
5: they're not gonna they're not gonna just not use Kepler. Are they? I mean, it's up in space. The only only problem is that it's a huge amount of money to put something in space, and the scientific goal has to drive it, and then that primary goal is not there anymore. That is really sad. But you've got to make the best of a bad situation, which is what's happening. I think that's that's a good idea. Definitely,
0: yeah. I mean, Kepler has sort of achieved its mission objective because it did did do science for its allocated amount of time, and it's found about 3,000 exoplanet candidates, and the data hasn't been fully processed yet. But... um, yeah, no, I think it's a good idea as well to repurpose, uh, to make the, as you say, make the best of a bad situation and, yeah. and try and get the most amount of science you can out of it. So, George, what's your end for this month?
4: Well, I'm going to talk about something which in some ways is uh, new and cutting edge stuff, but is actually uh, started with uh, observations that were done just over 10 years ago. So back in 2002, the Hubble Space Telescope did observations of a cluster named Abel-16A9. Now, I don't recall exactly why the observations were done. This could have been to look at gravitational lensing, or it could have been done to look at the galaxies within the uh, cluster. But one person, uh, John Blakesley, looked at this image and said, well, if you look really carefully, you can just barely begin to see where the individual globular clusters are in this uh, system. Just to review globular clusters really briefly, these are things that are uh, uh, spheres of one million stars. Uh, You find them orbiting Milky Way galaxy, you find them orbiting other galaxies as well. This cluster is about 2.25 billion light years away, so that's actually quite a very long ways away to see just individual spheres of a million stars. This guy, John Blakesley, got a collaboration together and put together a proposal for the Hubble Space Telescope to try to look at this cluster of galaxies more deeply with the Hubble Space Telescope and see how many clusters they can find. And they actually found quite a bit. They recently got their papers accepted for publication and did a nice press release through uh, the Space Telescope Science Institute on their results, including their new images. They managed to find 10,000 globular clusters, mainly concentrated around the largest elliptical galaxy in the center of the cluster of galaxies. Now, these are just the brightest, uh, the globular clusters. Now, I said that globular clusters are about a million stars. That's actually kind of variable. There are going to be some which are much more massive. The group thinks that uh, that there may be 160,000 globular clusters in this cluster of galaxies, mainly concentrated around the brightest cluster galaxy in the core. For comparison, the Milky Way galaxy has an astounding number of 150 globular clusters.
5: So how does this fit in? Do you know how it fits in with simulations or anything? I mean, are these well, kind of predicted?
4: The number of globular clusters that you get around the galaxy is related to the amount of dark matter that's within the galaxy. And when you get larger. Um, it's just about spheres, how much they can
5: be trapped by the dark matter. It,
4: uh, they also may form within uh, or in the environments around
5: okay.
4: uh, in large dark matter halos. So when you go to more massive galaxies, you tend to get more globular clusters. Also, when you have larger bulges in spiral galaxies or when you have elliptical galaxies, you tend to find relatively more globular clusters. So in this case, what this is telling us is that there is a huge amount of dark matter in the center of this cluster of galaxies where you end up with all of these globular clusters. To get back to what you were saying, This then tells us something about how the galaxies are forming within this cluster and how the cluster of galaxies uh, form overall.
5: So it's another piece in the puzzle of working out cluster physics.
4: Well, that, I just think it's really cool to find so many globular clusters in one place in the universe.
0: Yeah, this is a pretty massive galaxy cluster and galaxy in the center as well, so that's really cool. Chris, what have you got for us this month?
5: Uh, on the 25th of September, NASA published a load of papers in Science about recent results from Curiosity, the Mars mission, and they have found water on Mars, which uh-huh. is incredible. So this particular part of the experiment, which I'll be talking about, they found a little pile of like dust, mm-hmm. mud, and they call, it, they call it the rock nest, because it was just behind a, rock, a pile of rocks in Mars, <laughs> okay. and they scooped up something as they said about a handful of 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 rock of, of like sand, and they sieved a little bit out and they took that small amount which they'd sieved out and heated it to eight hundred degrees centigrade.
0: Oh wow, they have like a little furnace oven. on the rover or something you were yeah. on the rover they
5: literally have a nice. little oven and so as you as you heated the uh, dust, they measured the gas coming off it, and so as as you heated it, the gas was slowly released, so they could count how much water came out and so they found two percent by volume of the stuff stuff that they put into the
0: oven. Was water that amazing? Is, yeah, it's pretty cool. What kind of form is the water in it, in in the ground? Is it going to be easy to get at?
5: It's trapped within the rocks, within the particles that made up the dust pile, which they were using. Right, and um, and so they well, obviously they got loads of other instruments on on the mission as well, and they they know that in this pile of dust which they scooped up, of the bit went to another instrument, and they did. I didn't quite, quite understand this bit, but effectively they found that some of them are very crystalline structures and some of them, the crystals are kind of broken up. And so their conclusion is that the water must come from the uncrystal, the, the broken up crystals. Right, yeah. Which is interesting because it kind of says, well, how did that happen? And so they, they look at the water in, a, in even more detail and they found that the ratio of hydrogen to deuterium mm-hmm. that's going make, made up the water is the same ratio as you find in the atmosphere in Mars. So their conclusions are that probably the water is actually absorbed from the atmosphere into the into the dust into the surface of Mars. Nice.
0: I mean, yeah, just just last episode, I think we were talking about a company that wants to send try and send people to Mars uh, form of a reality TV show. But obviously, I think it's well, that's one stepping stone out of the way because you'd be able to. Yeah. Potentially extract water from the surface of the planet. I mean, their so.
5: their big like tagline statement is from a cubic foot they could get two pints.
0: Yeah, well, there's plenty yeah. of there's plenty of dust on Mars. So I think that'd be alright.
5: <laughs> yeah, but they they did find bad news for life for oh. taking a mission to Mars. They also found as you heated it, you got huge amounts of chlorine oxygen. Uh, not so good. So there's highly poisonous substance in the dust as well. So you'd have to be very careful if you were to take a mission there. That none of that dust ever came in contact with a human.
4: On the other hand, you potentially have enough water and chlorine to have your own public swimming pool. <laughs>
5: <laughs> yeah, you could have swimming pools on Mars. <laughs> That's what we
6: found.
0: <laughs> That's all it is, isn't it? It's probably just the remnants of of old Martian swimming pools that yep. dissolved into the into the ground. Excellent. And now, telling us if we can see Mars in the night sky this month, here's Ian Morrison.
6: The night sky for October 2013. Before I start, just a little bit about the atmosphere through which we have to observe. There are two parameters that we sort of note. One is called the seeing, and it specifies how turbulent the atmosphere is. And that's important if you're actually looking, say, at high magnification at the planets. It's not so important when you're looking at distant galaxies and things like that. The other is the transparency of the atmosphere. It's basically a function of how much dust and aerosols and other little bits of things are in the atmosphere. They have two effects. One, of course, is they reduce the brightness of what you're looking at. But equally badly, they reflect more of the light from the ground, the light pollution. So it's sort of a double whammy. We have had some nights recently when the atmosphere has been very transparent. And the thing that I noticed, observing from about a mile from a town centre of about 25,000 inhabitants, was that in fact, using a rather special metre, the limiting visual magnitude above me was 5.3. And that's actually pretty good. And I don't think I've ever had anything like that from the centre of a town before. And I suspect that one effect of the sort of downturn we've had in the last few years is that there are actually far fewer lights. I'm told, for example, about half the street lights are no longer operational. So that's really having an effect. So on occasions, it's surprising what you can see, even from an urban situation. Well, what about the sky? Well, of course, we've got a longer time to observe it now. After dark, moving towards the west, there's a very nice region of sky. In fact, high overhead initially is Cygnus the Swan with its bright star Deneb. And then Lyra, the lyre, with Vega, its very bright star. And below them, Altair in Aquila, the eagle, making up the Summer Triangle, which in fact you can keep seeing for quite a bit of the autumn, actually. Down towards the horizon from Vega is that rather nice constellation of Hercules, the four brightest stars making up what's called the Keystone, two-thirds of the way up from the right-hand side of the Keystone is a rather nice globular cluster called M13. These have about a million stars in them, and they date really from the formation of our galaxy. Looking a bit further south and around towards the east, we have the great square of Pegasus. How many stars one can see with one's unaided eye within the square is quite a good test of the transparency. Five isn't too bad, seven to nine is a lot better. Round from the upper left hand star of the square called Alpha Rats is the constellation of Andromeda. And there, of course, we have that lovely galaxy M31, the Andromeda Galaxy. And the way to find it's quite easy. You start from Alpha Rats, you go one star to the left, fairly bright star, curve a bit round to the right, go to the next star, then go sharp right, 90 degrees, go to one star and the same distance again, and you should see a little fuzzy glow. Certainly with binoculars, if you know where to look, and it's really transparent with your unaided eye as well. So there's quite a nice bit to see in the sky. Running down from Deneb towards the northeast is the plane of the Milky Way. In fact, I could actually make out a little bit of the Milky Way in the constellation of Cygnus the other night from my urban location. We have that rather nice open W, Cassiopeia. Below that is Perseus. And between the two, there's a lovely object or pair of objects called the double cluster. To the eye, they look like a little fuzzy blob, perhaps, if it's very clear and transparent. Binoculars will show them, and a telescope makes them look absolutely beautiful. So quite a lot to see in the sky in the evening. And, of course, if you're happy to wait until after midnight or so, then Taurus will be rising, and the first thing that one sees, actually is that rather beautiful open cluster called the Pleiades Cluster. But more of that next month. Well, what about the planets? Well, really, actually, it's the morning that's the best time to observe the planets. Jupiter's very well placed in the pre-dawn sky. And uh, also, I suppose, possibly towards the end of this month, we might have a chance to observe comet Ison. Well, Jupiter arrives at about midnight BST at the beginning of October and about two hours earlier by the end. At the start of what they call astronomical twilight, it'll be about 40 degrees above the horizon in the southeast, shining at magnitude minus 2.2 with a disk 38 arcseconds across. So if you do get up early, just before dawn, you have a good chance to see it. It's lying in the constellation of Gemini, which is really right at the top of the ecliptic, which means it'll be highest in the sky, and that's really very good. On October the 12th, Jupiter's 90 degrees to the right of the sun. And that's actually a time when it's very good to look for what are called eclipses and shadow transits of the four Galilean moons. By the end of October, Jupiter will be high in the southern sky before dawn, and with a magnitude of minus 2.4, its diameter will have increased to about 41 arc seconds. So, good chance of picking out the great red spot in the south equatorial belt, and nicely now... Both equatorial belts are showing well. Mars is also in the morning sky. It lies in Leo, rising some four to five hours before the sun this month, and shining at magnitude plus 1.6, so it's not that bright yet. Easily visible in binoculars in the pre-dawn sky, but obviously don't use them once the sun has risen. Its magnitude stays pretty well constant this month at plus 1.6. The angular size increases a little bit from 4.4 to 4.9 arc seconds. Now that's interesting because once it's about 5 arc seconds, you can begin to see some features on the surface, such as the polar caps and Circus Major. So we could say by the end of this month, Mars has really started its current apparition. It lies very close to Regulus, Alpha Leonis, on the morning of the 12th, and its pink-red colour should make a very nice colour contrast with the blue-white of Regulus, which is a little brighter at magnitude 1.4. It's also very close to Comet Ison, from October the 16th to the 19th, and that's something I'll come back to a little bit later. Well, what about the evening planets? Well, Saturn... Lying in Libra may just be visible low above the horizon for the first couple of weeks, lying well to the right of Venus over, of course, in the west. And you may well need binoculars to pick it out in the twilight sky. It will have a magnitude of plus 0.7 and an angular size of 15.5 arc seconds. The rings have opened up quite nicely. You can actually see the northern hemisphere while much of the Southern Hemisphere is actually hidden by the rings. We're not going to see it very well through a telescope as it's at low elevation, but I guess you might just pick out Saturn's largest moon, Titan. Saturn's now lying in the more southerly part of the ecliptic, so its elevation is not getting that high, and this will in fact get worse over quite a number of years to come. Well, we might just be able to spot Mercury. and It is a, a might, actually. It's twice as bright as Saturn, but it's below it. And the net result is it'll be very hard to pick out in the glare of the sun. So I'm not convinced that it's worth having a look for it. But on the 7th of October, it'll be five degrees below Saturn. And above Saturn, in fact, there'll be a slender crescent moon. So perhaps it's worth a try. But I promise you it won't be easy. Well, Venus can be seen above the horizon in the west after sunset with its brightness increasing from minus 4.2 to minus 4.5 magnitude, so that's pretty bright. It's moving very quickly across the heavens. It starts the month in Libra, passes through Scorpius above Antares, and then off Euchus before reaching Sagittarius on November the 1st, when it's at its furthest angular separation from the sun. The disk is getting larger, 18 to 25 arcseconds in the month, but at the same time the percentage illuminated decreases from 73 to 50%. And that's why there's an interesting fact about Venus, the brightness stays pretty much constant over quite a long time. Because when it's further away from the Earth, more of its smaller disk is illuminated by the Sun. So we have 50% of a 25 arc-second disk, and that's pretty much equivalent in reflecting area to 73% of an 18 arc-second disk. Well, finally... What about some highlights? Well, October the 8th after sunset, theoretically one could see Venus, Saturn and Mercury along with a thin crescent moon. It's about 45 minutes after sunset. You need a very low horizon in the west-southwest. I think you should easily see Venus lying below the moon and Saturn over to its right. That'll be above Mercury but I'm not convinced you'll pick out Mercury. Maybe with binoculars you might well have a chance. I've mentioned Mars, and on October the 14th, I think, as I said, it'll be very close to Regulus and Leo, making a very nice colour contrast. It's still actually quite a good month to observe Neptune with a small telescope, and on the night sky page, there's a chart showing you where to look. It was nearest the Earth on the 27th of August, so actually you see it quite well. In the evening this month, its magnitude is plus 7.9, so it's quite easily visible in binoculars if you know where to look, and that's in the constellation of Aquarius as shown on the chart. It reaches an elevation of about 27 degrees when due south. If it's a good transparent night, as we had some recently, and given a telescope of 8 or more inches in diameter, you might well be able to spot its moon Triton. Well, finally, you've all heard about Comet Ison. I suspect. It should become visible in a medium-sized telescope this month and will lie just above Regulus in Leo on the 16th and very close to Mars between the 16th and the 19th. The brightness was predicted to increase from magnitude 10 to magnitude 7 during October and with magnitude 7, binoculars should pick it up quite easily. However, it doesn't seem to be brightening as much as predicted, and when observed on August the 12th, had a magnitude of 14.3 rather than a predicted magnitude between 12.3 and 13.5. So sadly, this might mean that Isom will not be the spectacular comet that many had hoped for. On the 16th, it will be very close to Mars, and Regulus in Leo and it stays within one degree of Mars from the 16th to the 19th. We'll try and keep you updated as we learn more. There's a very nice app for iPad and Android devices called Sky Safari Plus and that allows you to download the orbital elements of the comet and it will then plot its position on the sky. And that's in fact how I have found the positions to plot on the chart to show you where Comet Ison. we found this month. There's an excellent website relating to the comet with lots of nice charts through the month. And you can find that by searching for Waiting for Ison," All small letters actually, Waiting for Ison." Those three words should find you the website and I think it's well worth a look at. So let's hope you have some nice observing and you get some of these rather lovely transparent skies so you see the sky more clearly than sometimes.
0: Thanks for that, Ian. And for our Antipodean listeners, here's John Field with the Southern Night Sky.
6: Kia ora, and welcome
7: to the October jobcast coming to you from Carter Observatory, Wellington, New Zealand. October sees Scorpius and Sagittarius in our western sky after sunset, and by midnight these constellations will begin to set. In the early evening, the Milky Way is running north to south, and by midnight it will be run along the western horizon. The period around new moon on the fifth will give you the best chance to observe the zodiacal light after sunset in the west. Caused by sunlight reflecting off dust particles along the ecliptic, it will appear as a triangular cone of light. Saturn and Spica are low in the west and will soon be lost in our twilight sky. Venus is still high in our evening sky and on the 8th the crescent moon will sit nearby. On the 17th Venus will be nearby to Antares and Scorpius. Both Neptune and Uranus are in our evening sky, but due to their faintness they are challenging targets. The brightest true star in our evening sky is in the south-east. This is Canopus. During the night it will climb higher in our southern sky. Whilst low down, this star will twinkle in a variety of colours and this will decrease as it climbs higher. Tomari Canopus is Atutaki, the high chief of the heavens. Canopus is only outshone by Sirius, the brightest star in our night sky. Sirius rises in the south-east after midnight. At this time, we have the three brightest stars, Sirius, Canopus, and Alpha Centauri, visible along the Milky Way. Alpha Centauri is the brighter of the two pointer stars that points towards Crux, the Southern Cross. When seen with the unaided eye, Alpha Centauri appears as a single yellow star, with a yellowish hue. In a small telescope, however, this star can be split as two separate stars, one visibly brighter than the other. One is slightly brighter than our Sun, while the other is slightly fainter. Both orbit around each other in a period of about 80 years. Due to it being a binary some lists of bright stars do not have Alpha Centauri as third by the by brightest star but to the unaided human eye it outshines Arcturus the next brightest star. The southern cross, Crux, can be found in the southwestern sky below Alpha Centauri after sunset. During the evening it will get progressively lower and will be close to the horizon around midnight. From New Zealand Crux will never set Pivoting along the Milky Way from the pointers and crux, we come to a bright haze in the Milky Way galaxy. Called the Carina Nebula, it is a vast star-forming region about 8,000 light-years away. This cloud is brighter and covers four times the area in the night sky than the more famous Great Nebula in Orion. Yet it is about six times further away. In binoculars and small telescopes, dark lanes and numerous star clusters are visible. Sitting in the Carina Nebula is a bright orange star called Eta Carina. Among the most massive stars in the galaxy, this star has been brightening over the last 20 years and is now visible to the unaided eye. The two magnetic clouds are high in the south, sitting not far from the bright star Achenar. These two dwarf irregular galaxies are nearby neighbours to our own galaxy, around 160 and 200,000 light-years away. Both will appear as hazy clouds slowly moving with the stars in our sky around the celestial pole. In 1987, a supernova was observed in the larger of the clouds. Although 200,000 light-years away, the supernova became bright enough to be seen with the unaided eye. Very low in the northern sky is the Andromeda galaxy, easily seen in binoculars from a dark sky site It is visible to the eye. It is similar in shape to our Milky Way galaxy, but a little bit bigger and nearly 3 million light-years away. Jupiter will rise in the east around 3 a.m., and it will be low in the north by sunrise, hiding in the twilight sky, as Mars appearing as a red star. In 1989, the first potential extrasolar planet was discovered, and today the current total has risen to 974. Finally, climate Ison is approaching our star the Sun, and in early October it will pass by Mars and Regulus in Leo. The comet will be low and to the north of Mars for the rest of October. The comet should be visible in telescopes and in binoculars as the month goes by. The comet may become visible to the eye by the end of October. We may still be in for an impressive display during November when the comet will be at its closest to the Sun. The size of this comet's nucleus has been estimated at being around 5 kilometres. We wish all our listeners clear skies from the team here at Carter Observatory.
0: Thanks for that, John. Now on to the feedback. Unfortunately, we haven't had any posts from you guys this month, but we're, we're still hoping for some to arrive any day. George, what's been going on on the Facebook page?
4: Well, we uh, have a uh, couple of uh, posts. Uh, Chris Redfield posted a nice picture with his Jodcast t-shirt and some birthday cake. Henning Vester-Jorgensen messaged us to say, Just found your casts a few days ago. Wonderful cast. Thanks a lot. Don't lower the bar. Please, please continue the good work.
0: Thanks for that, Henning. That's, it's really a pleasure to receive some positive feedback like that. And obviously we do try our best every month to make sure that the Jodcast is up to the standard that you guys expect. Dr. Evan Keane
5: mentioned on Twitter his job bite was in last month's September Extra. I'm on the current episode of At Jodcast talking about Sagittarius A-Star, the supermassive black hole in the centre of our galaxy. Check it out. As usual, thanks for all the retweets and follow Fridays.
0: And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net.
5: On the forum at forum.jodcast.net.
4: On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast.
0: On Facebook at facebook.com slash Jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash Jodcast.
4: On Flickr at flickr.com slash group slash Jodcast.
0: And don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on the website. All that remains is to say thanks to Professor Andrew Jaffe for the interview. The editors were Mark Perver and Sally Cooper. And the producer was Indy Leclerc. Until next time, John. John.